0: You are listening to The Dylan Taunt's Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Is It About Bob Dylan? Today, we're talking to Dr. Keith Nainby. Keith is a professor of communication studies at California State University, Stanislaus. There, his primary academic interests include pedagogy, philosophy, and performance. Keith currently focuses on the cultural context of Musical performances, such as listener engagements and fan communities. He has published a book and four essays with a fifth forthcoming on Bob Dylan, most with co author John M. Rodasta. His book on Taylor Swift and Swifty identities is also forthcoming. So, Keith, welcome to the Dylan Tots. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. I'm really excited to talk today. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you here. So, what is it about Bob Dylan? I mean that's
1: that's the question right, Um, I would say, uh, you know, one of the quirky things for me as somebody who's really interested in communication and philosophizing about communication in strange ways is that. um, I feel like people artists are perhaps the most obvious example, but people generally we speak into the world, and as we do so we narrow what's possible, right? This conversation is going to unfold between you and me in the ways it's going to unfold because of what each of us decides to say and decides to focus on. And I think that's an interesting thing, right? We, we change the world as we speak into it, but most of the time that becomes foreclosure in some way or another. For most songwriters in my experience who I've listened to, for most poets I read, for most authors of fiction or nonfiction I read, as our knowledge or understanding deepens it forecloses other possibilities around it Um, and what i really admire most about dylan and what keeps drawing me back to dylan all the time is in my experience uniquely when dylan speaks multiple possibilities arise rather than being foreclosed so we deepen in meaning we understand the world differently as speech always helps us do but somehow dylan finds the way to always complicate every phrase and to never foreclose. And I find that fascinating.
0: That's really interesting. I, I love that idea that he complicates things. He problematizes. Um, he just find he, he contains multitudes and he projects multitudes, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so yeah. you mentioned to me about your, your double belatedness in terms of becoming a Dylan fan. So talk about your, your Dylan journey. Um, what, you know, what, what is I call it your, your Dylan Rubicon. When did you cross that Dylan Rubicon, that that point of no return? Well, and it relates to the double for me because I feel like I
1: crossed that Dylan Rubicon in my own listening life and my own writing life like two different times. Um, so first I went to college as somebody who'd grown up on classic rock radio, you know, I thought, okay, all the greats of the sixties and and seventies I've inherited as somebody born in 1970. Um, my mom was actually born in 1950 in the New York area and was one of those screaming teens when the Beatles got off that plane. And so, you know, that's, that's sort of, it felt like an inheritance to me musically. And I knew sort of intellectually that Dylan must be a part of that. But the thing about classic rock radio in the eighties, at least as the, as the uh, kind of programming was then Michael Rolling Stone was on the radio. And maybe if you had a DJ who wanted to be a little bit edgy, uh rainy day women would be on right. Like, and that's it. I didn't hear any other Dylan. I just knew his name and uh, it's 12 and 35. Right. I'm always afraid I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's rainy day women, number 12 and 35. Right. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Um, and so I went to college, and John, the person with whom I've written a lot of my Dylan scholarship collaboratively, uh, he was someone I lived with in my dorm first year. And he and another close friend of his, uh, they were sophomores, had been passionate Dylan fans their entire teenage lives and had been to several shows by that point already and had bonded, cemented their friendship over Dylan um and john sort of reached out to me to connect over music and shared dylan with me uh and it's interesting because it wasn't unidirectional you know like he had he had come up in the 80s listening to like omd and psychedelic furs and stuff like that that was his his uh teenage life and i've been listening to iron maiden you know and, and stuff like this and so he didn't find the music that i brought to the table very interesting um But he shared a you know, it's cassette tapes in those days. So he hands me a copy of bringing it all back home to listen to on my own, you know, cassette Walkman thing. And it's starting on side B. I don't even hear the first side. So the first thing I hear is Mr. Tambourine Man. And of course, I recognize the song and I'm excited to actually listen to it intentionally for the first time. But by the time I got through Gates of Eden, like I was overwhelmed. I'm like, this is metal like this is not what I expected out of Bob Dylan, right? And so the, the last three tracks on that, uh, on that side B of that cassette just overwhelmed me. Uh, and I started taking a serious interest in Dylan and um, fell in love with a lot of the work then. Um, so that was my first crossing of the Dylan Rubicon. Um, and it was great for me because it was, it was part of a, you know, rapid period of growth in all kinds of ways, as a listener, as a writer, as a thinker, because it was college. So it was great and chance to form bonds with folks, but I didn't see any shows. You know, I didn't have any money. I was college student. I don't know how they had money to see Dylan, but I didn't have money to see Dylan. Um, But then it's another fifteen years for me where I'm in my in the job I'm in now. Uh, When I took this job, I i set myself up for an hour and 45 minute each way commute it's not that long now i've moved a little bit closer but i'm in the car for three and a half hours a day my first year in this job here in stanislaus state and what how i always handle things is i listen to music i listen to music for three or four hours a day anyway out of my own personal interest i'll just move it to the car and that way the commute doesn't feel so daunting to me Um, So what I started to do was listen a little more with a little greater care and intentionality to music i had been sort of carrying around for decades and listening to in a kind of occasional way. Um, And that's when my focus on Dylan really sharpened up. And I started to spend time on the Expecting Rain site and I started to really, you know, start to do what I guess I could call now but wouldn't have called then research like when I when I go in depth I go in depth and so you know I'm listening to bootlegs and I'm reading about his life and reading, reading all the biographies I can I'm reading Shelton and I'm reading Scaduto and I'm reading it all and um, and so that was sort of the, that's the big crossing. And that was not until the fall of 2005, basically, when I started driving for this job in August of 2005, I didn't listen to any other music for a year than Dylan. I mean, I stopped listening to anything else. Um, and of course, we know, you know, if you're, if you're a part of the community that's checking out this, this event here, um, that's easy to do. To listen to nothing but Dylan for a year in two thousand five, two thousand six, you're not even started yet. Like you're just, you're just getting your feet wet. Um, and so I would—that's
0: my best answer for the Rubicon question. It's a good answer. <laughs> and you got your feet wet in the Rubicon. All right. So <laughs> I, I, I gotta, I gotta follow up with something you said early on there about Dylan being metal. And I'm particularly interested in that because in Philosophy of Modern Song, the chapter on the Osborne Brothers' song Ruby. Um, he talks about their 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 sort of this bluegrass bands uh, in terms of metal, in terms of heavy yeah. metal. So yeah. explain.
1: Well, and that's one of my favorite essays in that book. I love that one. But um, you know, another another way that I would connect to this isn't just through bluegrass and what Dylan says uh, about the Osbournes, but for me, it's like I listen to classical music a lot. And uh, I have friends in my life who share popular music interests with me, who reach out to me because they see me as more knowledgeable than them about some classical listening. And I'm not a musician myself. I play a little bit of piano. So I come at all of this from a listener perspective. Um, but you know, one of the things I frequently tell folks in my life who listen to hard music, hard popular music, like hard rock metal is Shostakovich is more metal than anyone. Shostakovich makes, you know, Iron Maiden seem soft. Like it's um, and so I really I agree with Dylan and his 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 approach to the world where, like, to me, what's metal is something that uh, combines a sort of um, a sort of rigorous engagement of the world, like a kind of uncompromising stance that's, you know, I believe in invitational rhetoric. I think many of our relationships are enhanced by a kind of invitational stance where we seek dialogue and we seek to collaborate. But some circumstances aren't meant for that some circumstances are meant for a kind of confrontational stance a kind of confrontational rhetoric and I think for me that's one thing that metal is is it's a confrontational stance that a song might take. Um, And another one is just sort of being willing to. um, lean all the way into whatever the music does right like whatever the music's tropes are whatever the history of the style or the instrumentation the arrangement like turning it up to 11, right? To steal from Spinal Tap. Like to me, what's metal is if you've got a song that's based in a complex set of drum rhythms, right? Like they shouldn't be in the background. Like the rhythms should dominate the song. And for me, that's, that's metal also, right? Like kind of leaning all the way in musically. And so, you know, I think Gates of Eden is an excellent example of that, right? Like it's, it's a confrontational stance and the phrasing of that song is a leaning all the way in. Like, just, you know, I'm not going to I'm not just going to have a cadence as a as a singer. It feels like Dylan's suggesting I'm going to see where that cadence takes us when it's in its most extreme form in a song like Gates
0: of Eden. And so I don't know. That's that's what metal means to me. So, OK, let, let's let's talk about Dylan as a singer. You're you're you have a particular interest in Dylan's voice and Dylan's voice. Love it. Leave it. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> is is the one of the most talked about aspects of Dylan, not always fruitfully. So talk about his voice. Well, you know, I mean, I think
1: that many of us as, as passionate bobcats have kind of come to this place where we recognize there's a difference between how people understand what singing is and what voices are for. Um, and I think, you know, I certainly can't take credit for originating this idea, but I'm also not sure that I can cite anyone, like many of us, who, who identify as, as passionate fans of Bob, I think, recognize, well, people who, we all have these folks in our lives, our loved ones, our close friends who are like, I don't know how you could listen to that guy sing. And for me, it's what you've just said when you say that is that you've indicated you and I have a different understanding of what the purpose of singing is, um, which is that you, know, you are you trying to sound like Mel Torme? Are you trying to sound like you know um, Luciano Pavarotti? Like, are you hoping to make a beautiful sound so that the voice becomes a kind of instrument? That's a way to sing, and I love Pavarotti, right? I mean, I have no objection to that, but it's not the only way to sing, and that often, you know, Pavarotti himself does this. Sometimes the voice shapes meaning; the words themselves are encoded in different ways with meaning it's shaded in different ways. And that's also what singing is, right? And uh, and uh I don't know that I've ever heard anyone do that better than Dylan. Like his, his voice is extraordinary to me because it's not pretty in any sort of traditional sense, but it's always, the words are always challenged by being sung by Dylan. And especially since they're his own words, I think that that's twice fascinating.
0: I, um just heard dylan's tribute to tony bennett at his 90th birthday party a friend of mine sent it to me and I, I hadn't heard that you know since i first heard it and it it is i mean i'm sorry that voice is beautiful <laughs> I, I believe you i it's absolutely believe as anything you know Pavarotti did or, or bennett in many ways and I'm, I'm actually i love tony bennett my dad was a, a big Thanks. tony bennett fan so i grew up with that Um, But yeah, it's an interesting thing, the the Dylan voice thing. Now you, you wrote a book with, with um, John Rodosto about performance, right? In Dylan. And so I I want you to talk a little bit about that book. Just tell us a little bit about it, but um, start with telling us what, what is performance studies?
1: So performance studies, as I understand it, it's a, it's a blend of disciplines, my own discipline, which is communication, which often focuses on speech and oration, um, and theater, which focuses of course, traditionally on like, you know, dramatic texts and the aesthetic performances of dramatic texts. Um, but also there are, you know, people who declaim poetry in high school and win awards for it, right? All of those sorts of, of threads blend in, uh, to, to performance studies as a discipline, which is focused on, how do we make meaning in our bodies? So it's sort of similar to what I said about Dylan, but the entire body's part of it, right? Like a very obvious example of what performance studies illuminates. There's this new movie, Barbie, out right now. And, and, you know, that movie is about the ways in which we not only dress ourselves in certain ways, but we adopt certain mannerisms and certain ways of communicating that are like, you know, garb of gender, cloaks of gender. And that's the sort of thing we performance studies scholars are really interested in that goes way beyond just gender like how do we, how do we cloak ourselves in the garb of professionalism, how do we cloak ourselves. In the garb of being a student in ways that can enable a teacher to embrace or reject us and our efforts right. That's the kind of thing that performance studies folks are really interested in so the idea is aesthetic and aestheticized performances that happen on stage. They happen in everyday life too. With different standards and different expectations that have impact on our lives, um, so that that's how I understand performance studies. But why I thought it might be an especially interesting thing for John and I to do um, to explore Dylan through that lens is you know he's worked in multiple media, so he's not only a songwriter, he paints, he. In, gets involved heavily in productions of films and in, you know, even the touring show like Rolling Thunder Review, which is a kind of, you know, he adopts this fascinating Harlequin tradition in his, in his grease paint on his face. And uh, all of those are sort of ways of engaging aesthetic traditions that, that shape meaning by, you know, using our bodies to do something. Right. Um, and I think that, you know because of the thing about the voice especially i'm always really interested in how dylan finds that you know the same words or similar words can be inflected so differently based on context um of course there's the obvious way in which he changes songs over time as he reperforms them um simple twist of fate is almost unrecognizable sometimes from performance to performance uh and and for me that's a performance studies question right like wait it's the same text it's the same written text it's the same set of chords And, you know, certainly sometimes the music changes, Um, but often it's not so much the changing of the music as the changing of rhythm and tempo, which is, of course, a part of the music, but especially the changing of how he sings and the changing of the context of the song itself within a broader um, concert experience or a broader era, you know, like in Simple Simple Twist of Fate, you can think of something like, you know, the um, the the tour in 1978 for Street Legal, where there's a certain kind of a vibe that's happening, right? And I mean, I, I don't know that the Budokan package is the best way to capture that, but there's a vibe, right? It's got that jazziness with all the horns, but it's also, it's a little bit metal. It's got that kind of insistent quality, especially in his phrasing um, that you hear in a song like, um, like, where are you tonight, right? This kind of confrontational stance again. And, and I think a song like Simple Twist of Fate changes, right, from something that's wistful to something that captures like a, like a, it's not so much a gotcha as it is like an analysis of the relationship between history and the present. I don't know, that sounds very aggrandizing, but that, that's kind of what comes to mind, right? And all of that to me is performance studies helps us think about these kinds of questions
0: yeah i love that and, uh, some of those performances of twist of fate um especially around uh 1819, just it just astonishing you hear some of the bootlegs some of the concerts i went to um right. they were uh, to me in many ways they were they were well one of the high points because that was also when he, he was doing uh, a incredible version of not dark yet um and and then the the and then he did the the he the, for for the first time he considerably altered like a rolling stone and I think Mm -hmm, mm very positive ways too um really really great performances in, in that period and lots of those changes and now even with rough and rowdy ways you know you hear the bootlegs you go to the performances and boys it 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 changes a lot um quite a bit and yeah in really interesting ways I mean, you—you you really say it
1: when you talk about the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour. I, I've only seen Dylan five times, which makes me pale in comparison to my co-author, who's seen him fifty times. Um, but the Rough and Rowdy Ways show is my favorite of the five, and—and I—I really appreciate you going to that example. Like he, those songs, of course, are so interesting in their effort to kind of like deal with the. With the impact of history and the ways that we kind of create and live through legends and i mean that show was amazing i mean incandescent and in my ex i saw him in uh here in in the bay area in uh in oakland at the fox theater and i mean i've never seen anything like it and so many songs completely changed even from that album itself like from the rough and Rowdy ways studio rough and rowdy ways studio versions the live versions were completely different completely transformed
0: yeah i i um i've I've talked about this in earlier uh broadcasts but i saw him three times on that tour in uh Mm -hmm. in uh, port chester outside in in westchester county here in new york i saw him in philly and i saw him in dc and um it was each one was was different they they each Mm -hmm. had their own uniqueness they each had their own the songs weren't altered but there was a definite different feel at each and it wasn't yeah. just the crowd or the venue the way he performed um sometimes he was pushing things rushing them sometimes he's holding back something it was really really just fascinating just to, to see those differences And they were tremendous shows all three of them were just
1: yeah i'm so well. glad you saw those i haven't listened to the to the recording but i've heard that i've heard legends about that washington dc show in particular
0: yeah, it was it was good. I, you know, of the three though, I I think I like the the poor Chester. Of course, I was also yeah. in that one I had um I was right up against the stage. So oh, <laughs> and standing room only, wow. which I had never wow. done before. I'm still paying off the debt for that, but <laughs> it was totally worth it. And my generous wife was with me. So oh, that's terrific. <laughs> that was great. Speaking of which, let's just get right to it recently there have been rumors floating around that um this is it for Dylan in terms of touring that this you know he's put dates on the Mm -hmm. tour poster right (laughs) which and you know it's like it's like watching the Kremlin in the 80s right you know it's you gotta (laughs) read this who's standing next to the premiere and all that (laughs) figure out you know what's going on but you know, the people noted that right off the bat and they thought it was just such an oddity, but no one even, you know, you're barely hearing me saying, well, maybe this is a way of saying this is the end. But now mm-hmm. people are saying, perhaps this really is the end. And I don't know what that's based on or if that's real, but there will be an end. Right. You know, right, right. Sad to say, there, there's always an end. And, you know, that's the human experience and Bob Dylan's human. And so, um, what do you think the implications of that are for, for fans, for researchers? You know, you study uh, Dylan's performance. What, what are, What's the impact of the end of touring? What will that be like?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I think that one of the things I hope is that both for passionate listeners, for fans and also for scholars, that we'll be able to engage when there is an end, whenever that end comes we'll be able to engage in ways that i think dylan himself has clearly expressed he would hope that we would do which is not to treat his his touring life as a museum piece right as something that has happened um and i think that to me the work lends itself to that for the reasons that um that i was thinking of earlier in terms of what is it about dylan right like we have recordings of course we have you know commercially issued and, and many many uncommercially issued um to work from even after he stops touring you know to love as listeners to write about and talk about but what i love about that is they're not only one thing right like you know when i get around to listening to the rough and rowdy ways washington dc show or if i can find the portchester show like that's one time won't be enough. One time can't possibly foreclose what there is to gain from that. And I think, you know, in the same way that so many people celebrate Dylan's touring, because he transforms the songs, because there are ways in which they're reshaped, I think that doesn't go away because he stops touring, right? I mean, that, you know, he's left something with us, even leaving aside his studio work and his writing work as a, what he wants to be. As a song and dance man, he's left us... With a legacy that's not easy to digest or put in a museum or resolve meaning in, and I think that to me, on some level, that that forestalls an end, right? Even when he's not touring, that that forestalls an end to the touring Dylan on some level. So the
0: performance goes on. That's what I think. Yeah, the performance goes on beyond the performance, and not just not just because we have a lot of recordings, (laughs) right? Right. right. I think you're right about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. So. Speaking of your scholarship, so you're you're a, a contributor in the forthcoming book on um, Dylan's set list that's been edited by uh, fellow Dylan tots uh, Aaron Callahan and Court Carney. Could you give us a little preview of that? That that's supposed to be coming out in the fall. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're in there too, and I can't wait
1: to read your chapter. But um, so so what John and I focus on is uh, two, two we we kind of compare and com- I mean compare and contrast seems. We, we use as endpoints to promote dialogue two concerts, the Halloween concert from 1964, um, which is released in the live bootleg series as volume six, and the, um, the so-called Royal Albert Hall show, which was actually in Manchester Free Trade Hall, live bootleg series volume four. So we're working with commercial releases in both cases. And what we try to do is to focus on Dylan's engagement practices with the audience, especially through the set lists. So, for example, in Halloween 64, he's coming off a huge writing period and he's integrating some of those new songs into his show and discarding many of the songs that have made his name for him in the sort of so-called folk protest movement. Um, and and he's clearly self-conscious about that, right? There there are things we write about that have to do with how he signals to the audience that he's aware that the set list is perhaps not what they expect, and titles change, right? And he makes wisecracks about things that don't really seem wisecracky, like the Davy Moore song, the mm-hmm. Who killed Davy Moore song. Um, so so then we juxtapose that with an analysis of the Notorious Judas show to think about how again the set list doesn't simply embrace songs from 1965 and 1966 but has some earlier work and what kind of work are those earlier songs doing in an electrified band environment and in the confrontational again engagement with the crowd at Manchester um and so that's what our chapter's about
0: this is going to be a tremendous book it's got some really good writers in there um i'm looking forward to what you and john have done it's gonna it's gonna be a really a really special publication when it comes out and as court carney says priced affordably for no one
1: <laughs> so. welcome to academic publishing but yes yeah, indeed. There you go. <laughs> i feel really lucky i agree with your assessment i mean i got to meet so many of you folks at the at the at the conference in june and i mean the to a person, I'm like, wow. So you're going to include a chapter in this book also? Like, I can't wait to see what you have to say. I mean, so many great folks.
0: Yeah, they really marshaled a lot of really good good names in there. I'm uh, happy to be in there with them. Yeah, and uh, the World of Bob Dylan Conference is where I met you in, in Tulsa. Um, you know, we we can talk a little bit about that, but I've talked about that at some length already. So I want to kind of find out a little bit more about you. Gotcha. What are you working on now, Dylan-wise, or what are you contemplating?
1: So, um. I'm not sure where I'll go next in terms of Dylan. I mean, I am interested because of the performance studies angle in some of those questions around touring, right? So, I mean, I wasn't I, I really appreciate your turning my thinking to the end wherever it comes of touring. But um, I guess the set list chapter is a good example of like, I think as somebody who listens so much to studio work, right, is just what I'm often doing. Dylan is an artist among all other artists who takes me out of that, right? And really kind of embodies what he professes, which is, you know, I'm a performer, I'm a performing artist. Um, and so I'm not sure, you know, to use Rick's visions of sin intro, I'm not sure yet what the right handle to take hold of the bundle is, but I'm really interested in um, just exploring more deeply how Dylan kind of relates to to audiences. I mean, like, there's you know I'm a passionate Miles Davis fan right and there are all, all these stories of him, especially with audiences of particular demographics, he'll he'll turn his back on the audience or leave the stage right and and sort of engage the audience and of course there's the Judas concert right from Dylan's perspective and. So it opens up really interesting questions about what's the relationship between performer and audience at various points in Dylan's career and I mean that's the sort of thing I always find myself drawn to like. Except for the Judas guy, I know that we know who he is now I forget what his name is, but that person right it's so rare for the audience to really in my experience anyway um, become a central part of how we understand Dylan's work as a performer. But, you know, if we take him seriously and he's a song and dance man, you're not a song and dance man, unless someone is listening to the songs and is witnessing the dance at a minimum, if not dancing themselves. And so who are we and what, what do we contribute to the process for Dylan for, you know, one another? I mean, I'm really interested in those kinds of questions.
0: Yeah. That's uh, that's some interesting stuff. The, the, um, it, it, just early today, just inject some something I'm working on right now. I I write a a weekly blog and podcast um, for professionally um, as a leadership coach. And I was working on a piece this week about communication. And it was something a friend of mine said to me, a very wise man said um, something about how the audience actually has all the power. Once Mm -hmm. you put the message out there, it's mm-hmm. gone, right? The audience and I never really thought of it that way. And in, in leadership coaching, you think a lot about the empowerment of the audience by the leader, and the leader has to do active listening and all this. But the idea that once it's out there, you don't control it. Right. Um, which is right. really kind of in, in a Dylan context is very, very interesting. Right? Absolutely. And
1: one of the things I admire about Dylan and and I think about most Bobcats is we embrace that, right? Like, I mean, I think one of the things that Dylan beautifully does in that song and dance man interview is get at what you're saying, which is, you know, at a certain point, it's not my work anymore. It's work, right? But it's not—it's not like foreclosed, right? It's not—you know—it's not something he gets to say what happens with. And he mocks the reporters for—for for first of all, presuming that they get to say what happens with it. But then the other—the layer underneath of presuming that he gets to say how his work is understood. And he just—you know—he just making fun of them the whole time for believing either one of those things. So I think Dylan's right there with you in terms yeah. of. That question of you don't have – the message is not yours anymore once it's put out.
0: Yeah, yeah. If I'm interpreting you right, maybe I'm misinterpreting you on purpose because I have all the power. you <laughs> <laughs>
1: have right. Well, you have that, you have that right as the, as the listener, yeah, absolutely. Heady stuff.
0: Heady stuff. By the way, I want to give offer a little disclaimer. I just remembered you you mentioned before um, the, the question about the end. I'm going to attribute that to Erin Callahan. Um, okay. This is a truly collaborative site, and she, she threw me a couple good ideas for questions. So, what about um i think this is one of hers too what about your use of dylan in teaching have you have you taught dylan i have done some
1: i mean he's such a terrific person to uh to use as an exemplar when questions come up about for example the use of history right like um it must be great to be in a position like courts for example where you're you've got a broad set of scholarship on history that you can draw from that's focused on american historical you know questions Mm -hmm. And someone like Dylan, who's, you know, I I did an event here on my campus where um, a few of us were talking through our scholarship and a history professor who's a passionate Dylan fan here on campus. He's one of the people I connect with about Dylan. He asked about using Dylan in teaching. And so my response to him comes to mind here. Like, I mean, the whole goal, I think, for, you know, in a in a world where Elon Musk exists, right? Like the 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 goal I feel like for history curriculum, but for all curriculum at this level in college and high school, is how do we how do we continue to help young people whose sensibilities are shaped by digital engagement and by anything any fact can be looked up on Google, right? How 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 does history come to life? How does the legacy that we inherit? Of anything right of any disciplinary area or ways way of thinking how did how do these things become not google facts how do they become you know living ways that shape our lives and that we can reshape and i think i can't imagine a better example for that than dylan so like i like to play Dylan songs when part of what we're trying to do is to think about like you know how do you write in a way that invites readers to make sense of meaning i teach a writing class How do we invite, I've used him in that class before, because if the question on the table is, okay, is writing something you do to get an A from a teacher? For almost everybody in college, the answer is predominantly yes. Or how do we write in a way that doesn't just try to get access to an instrumental goal? Like, you know, a a letter to your grandma convincing her she should include you in her will, or a letter to your boss explaining why you should be promoted, right? These kinds of instrumental goals suggest that the writing itself is a linear tool, right? It's a hammer. Um, And I'm always striving in writing-based classes to to ask the question, how can writing be a practice, be a way of making sense of the world in the same way that looking or listening are or smelling? And I mean, Dylan is just optimal for illustrating that to me. (laughs) Like, you know, it's not that he sat down and imagined a story about you know somewhere vaguely in the southwest somebody being confronted by some set of powers they don't understand no like a song like señor is a living process of engaging the world right it's not it's not reporting even on something he imagined like you can hear in every phrase that it's the it's the writing that is the process, that is the goal, that is the, you know, it's not a hammer. He didn't pick up a songwriting practice as a hammer so he could communicate that song to us. And so I love to use Dylan in that way as a teacher.
0: Yeah, love that. what a great example too, Senor, in that context.
1: I've listened to that song hundreds of times. I have absolutely no idea what's happening in no, it. And not. it's
0: one of my favorite songs. <laughs> See, I know everything that's happening in it. I just can't figure out why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, do the students get it?
1: I mean, it's like anything else, right? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But here's here's the one fun thing about that. Students of different demographic spaces always surprise me with how they're familiar with Dylan. Right. So, I mean, I had an older student um, different than me demographically in multiple ways, apart from being an older woman. Like at the time I was teaching her, she was 20 years older than me. And she had a really powerful connection to Dylan as a civil rights figure. Right. And that mattered a lot to her. And then I'll have a student who's 20 years younger than me, who seems to be sort of not very um, excited about the things that are happening in the class, let's say. And it'll turn out that they see Dylan as, you know, a smartass in a way that they admire, right? Like as somebody who disrupts authority and, and, and kind of is willing to put his finger in the eye of the culture in ways that are interesting to them. And all these different ways that, that Dylan sort of, not just as a singer-songwriter and, and, and person in the world, but as, a, as an image, right? Dylan as text people engage it still in 2023 people engage the dylan text in really fascinating ways as a teacher that i have found like they think they know who he is they don't really or they know much more about him than i thought they did or some combination of those things
0: i ask this a lot not maybe not every time but i I try to ask people you're a dylan scholar but you're also a passionate dylan fan you've seen him five (laughs) times right Uh, (laughs) and how do you reconcile those two things or do you need to is that even necessary you know
1: i the best way i know how to answer this is i took a risk in our in our book uh, the book that john and i co-authored um on dylan and performance i i sort of stuck my neck out a little bit even in terms of my relationship with john because he's um you know he's an english prof- uh, teacher in high school but he definitely writes in my experience the way that english scholars write. So he's deeply connected to close readings of the text. And so everything is evidence-based for him. And it's as much as, you know, it would be for a scientist, right? My brother-in-law is an astronomer. He's not going to speculate about how X-ray binary systems interact. He's going to gain evidence about it. And, and I find that John writes that way about ideas. He, he wants concrete evidence. He wants to always go to the text. And I found myself sharpened up As a dylan fan in that way, by making sure that I was always in all of the chapters that I was working on primarily and that my responses to john and his chapters that he was working on primarily that I could stay yoked to evidence and not be too speculative and not be. But the final chapter in the book is not ethnography because, by coincidence, um, right when dylan was following his evangelical interests. So was my mother, who was a Jewish kid from New York, born in 1950. Now she's living in redneck Florida in the late 70s, and we don't have any money. You know, I mean, I'll just tell you everything. This is the thing about being on, in a situation like this with me. We're we're taking welfare. we we're, we're taking food stamps. We're barely scraping by. She's a single mom, and she's sending money on the weekly to Jim Baker's PTL Club. And to me, that's an inconsistent, cognitively dissonant practice as much as Dylan, the icon of anti authoritarianism, becoming a converted evangelical is cognitively dissonant. And so I couldn't let go the chronological alignment there. And I wrote the final chapter entirely speculatively speculatively it's a it's an autoethnography that links evangelical texts and dylan's evangelical process to my mom's and my own as a young kid being influenced by that and the reviewer um i think i've eventually sussed out who it is but it's a it's a published dylan scholar the reviewer in commenting on the book for the publisher said when I started reading that chapter it felt out of place I really wasn't sure what I thought of it and I don't know that all readers will know what to make of it but in the end I really liked it and so that felt like a success to me reconciling my fandom with my scholarship that that chapter worked for the for the person who was an established Dylan scholar reviewing it very rigorously
0: so that felt good to me So let's talk about other music you mentioned Miles Davis um when I when I read your biography I mentioned Taylor Swift What (laughs) music do you listen to and and how does it relate to dylan if at all
1: um i mean i I listen to a lot of different kinds of music uh certainly just to you know mentioning shostakovich and you mentioning taylor swift and me mentioning miles davis like this is a range of musical interests that i have music's always been really important to me um, at all stages of my life even as who that means has changed um but i think I think what matters to me is a kind of committedness, right? Like, I mean, so much of music is seen by folks to me who I think of as not so passionately connected to music. Like, when do they listen to music? On their earbuds when working out. And that's pretty much it, right? This is a gloss of a stereotype of a kind of listener. I see those folks as differently connected to music than I am. And I see myself as connected because I'm really interested in commitment, right? Like an artist who's really interested in choosing a set of practices the same way visual artists sometimes do and sticking with them right like the impressionists are like well i'm not going to rest until i kind of explore what this kind of brush stroke and this kind of visual perspective gives me and like i'm really drawn to that in music so another example i haven't mentioned is nick cave he strikes me as deeply committed in a way similar to dylan um or trust or miles davis um Uh, more lighthearted music that I also find deeply committed artistic practice would be like XTC, for example. Um, You know, I find that it's, the songs are sometimes light and poppy, but you can tell that there's a kind of seriousness of purpose there, right? And I steal that phrase from my favorite film critic, Robin Wood, um, who looks at films that way. So that's, you know, those are some other artists I listen to. And I guess that feels like the guiding thing for me, but it's what, changed my mind about taylor swift right i mean i can i began two years ago with a set of prejudices um that are still not entirely dislodged for me about nashville country pop and about contemporary pop artists whose music is sort of commercially often consumed by younger listeners um in like dance contexts or things parties And Taylor Swift intersects with both of those communities. And I sort of began with the assumption that whether I like the music or disliked it, its purpose, its aim musically is not an aim I'm very interested in, right? Selling records or promoting dancing or promoting something, right? That I'm not interested in. Taylor Swift is probably the most committed artist I can name. Like, I think by comparison, Dylan is a little bit casual and cavalier about his art compared to Taylor Swift. And I have a great deal of admiration for that. So it's something that stands out to me. Once I took the time to get to know the work, rather than allowing it to be filtered through my unwarranted stereotypes.
0: Yeah, isn't she working on a project where she's basically re recording all her albums? That's right. Yeah. And I mean, there's a commercial argument to
1: that, right? That's a compelling one. But there's also a, you know, cultural argument about it's 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 a stand in favor of musicians. It's a stand in favor, especially of women musicians. And so, you know, I think all of that stuff is cool. But I mean, even just as a songwriter and as a person who engages her audience, she's I mean, I don't think that there's a difference in seriousness of purpose between her and Isaac Newton. Like, I mean, she she's not kidding around. And it's it's an impressive thing to see.
0: Yeah, that is. Uh, by the way, I have to thank you for bringing up Miles Davis because you've, you've kept my longstanding record of somehow jazz coming up in every one of these conversations. Nice. Unbroken for <laughs> quite some time now. <laughs> nice. I love it. I should mention in terms of
1: of metal in particular, in one of my earliest experiences connecting with a professional jazz musician here in Oakland, um, a friend of mine who's also a professional jazz musician introduced me to this fellow, he's a drummer, and he wanted to know a little bit about my listening history. And I told him that when I moved away from high school into college, the first jazz that I really deeply engaged was John Coltrane. And he said, oh, that makes perfect sense to me. The move from Iron Maiden to John Coltrane is entirely sensible. In terms to him musically, he said, in terms of like a certain kind of intensity. Like he immediately got it. Like John Coltrane is metal. Like, I mean, the, he 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 went there faster than I could.
0: Yeah, I like that. That yeah, was fun. I, I think I moved from the Beatles to John Coltrane myself. Oh, <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. But I like the late Beatles better. And the late John Coltrane. <laughs> well Keith, this has been great. Um, thank you so much for for, for joining me and for contributing to the Dylan Taunts. Thanks so much for having me. This is really
1: terrific. I love this, and I'm hoping we can keep the dialogue going, even when we're not being recorded. Thank you
0: for listening to the Dylan Tons podcast. Be sure to subscribe to have the Dylan Tons sent directly to your inbox. And share the Dylan Tons on social media.